We are in Ephesians 4 this morning. Um, we looked in chapter 3, verses 14 through 21 at that prayer that Paul prays to see God's purposes accomplished in the Ephesians and by extension all of the saints that would read this letter. I wonder if any of you had an opportunity to pray that together with some other believers uh, this week. I really feel that that is a, a key here to God doing any kind of change in our lives as individuals and change as a church in general here into being conformed into this image and in greater maturity, conformity to the image of His Son. Um, and uh, I wonder at this time, uh, Brother, Brother Charlie, would you just lead us in prayer that God accomplishes um, these things in us as we look into His, his Word? Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning realizing we lack many of the attributes and the thoughts of you. God, you give us your word to help us to concentrate, to gain a greater understanding into real life. And then how many things is somebody that comes from being not knowing God to somebody who comes from beginning of knowing God and then finding out how great God really is. But God, we ask that you would help us to not only gain an understanding, but we gain the wisdom to live and to conduct our lives as Christians, Christ-like believers, and to follow the pattern that you have laid down for us. In so many ways, we throw all kinds of other things of life in that way. God, help us to redirect our thinking, realizing that at the end of life, we're going to come home to be with you forever. And many of the things that we have pursued and done in life are contrary to you. And God, we'd ask for forgiveness in those things. We'd even ask for even this morning for the forgiveness of not preparing our hearts and minds to receive the Spirit of God in a way that you can teach us. Help us even now, understand your word in a way that would change us. And that these things become real. We stop putting other things in the way, making excuses, whatever it might be that holds us back from truly fellowshipping and being with you all the time. Because in your spirit we are. Help us to realize those things. Help us to go forward knowing that we have the greatest hope that mankind has ever had. It's a hope that's in you. I pray that the word is born by Pastor and you will speak through him, use him as the gift that you've given him. And we thank you for each one that's here, my brothers and sisters. And I thank you for them and I pray you work in each one's life. We know everyone's in a different stage of life. But it all comes under the same rule that God is our hope. We thank you and praise you. As a Jew, Paul would have been very familiar with the story in First Chronicles where when the temple was dedicated after that amazing construction project of Solomon's temple, um, that they had a dedication service and they stood and blessed God and asked and made commitments to him and they saw God's glory come down and fill the temple, the Shekinah glory. And now he writes, as you heard in Ephesians 1 through 3, about the new temple, the church of Jesus Christ, 
not, not these four walls and the, and, the, and the platform here and the seats here, but the people. The people that wherever they would be, they were the temple of God. And there was also a very special expression of that when they were gathered together. And think of the words that the Lord Jesus himself even spoke when they were gathered together in his name. But unlike the Old Testament temple, Jesus, the Lord had told the Old Testament Jews, if you obey me, I will bless you. Here in the New Testament scriptures, as you saw in Ephesians 1 through 3, he says, I have already blessed you. Now, and you responded to that, now in response to my love and my grace, obey me. And he's given a, a, a fantastic calling in Christ. And as we see in chapter 4, verse 1, it's our responsibility to live up to that calling. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation or the calling wherewith you are called, with all meek lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What I'd like to do here after um, really having the, the Lord um, impress deeply in our, my heart, Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, is then, well, let's look at what follows that in Ephesians 4 and look at the topic of body life. So in the next few Sundays, we're going to be working through uh, Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, you can break it down into a, a few uh, sections here that help you understand the emphasis that Paul's uh, going to be, be teaching on. He elaborates four truths, really, about the kind of oneness now that we have in the Lord Jesus. You heard in Ephesians 2, the two, Jew and Gentile, being one. The wall of partition broken down. Christ being the chief cornerstone that connects the two walls here. In verse 2 and 3, you see that this, uh, this oneness here that's in the Lord depends on the love that's shown our, in, our, in our character, in our conduct to one another. Then you're going to see in verses 3 through 6, the foundations that he has laid, this, the, the foundation he has laid for our unity in God. And then you're going to see in verses 7 through 12, the diversity of our gifts that, that uh, adds flavor to this, that enriches this, that seasons this. And then in verses 13 through 16, the maturity of our growth. In these first three verses, you're going to see a life that is worthy of our calling. Now, I asked you this morning, after hearing all of Ephesians 1 through 3, what do you think the next thing, if you hadn't known what it is, would be that Paul says to the Ephesians? And they didn't have chapters and verses then. Those were added about a thousand years uh, ago. Um, but after that section there was read, what would be, be the next thing that you would expect to hear? And, yeah, it would make sense for Paul to say something like he does in chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prayers of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of this calling that you've been called to. That would make sense to be the next thing, wouldn't it? <coughs> but, would you expect the next words, then, to be what they are? The beginnings of this calling. Wouldn't you expect more grandiose things? And what does he talk about? Lowliness, gentleness, 
long-suffering, which means you're putting up with a lot, and forbearing one another in love, and making every effort to keep the unity. But wait, Paul, you just wrote three chapters about how amazing life is in God. And that's the things you got to write to tell us how to walk worthy of our calling? And the answer is, yes, it absolutely is. Because we can know all these things in our heads and hearts. We can have been uh, abundantly blessed by God with spiritual blessings, as we talked about in Ephesians 1. But we are not going to give him praise to the glory of the grace that he showed us unless we're showing that to others as well. And so he writes these three verses. He portrays the life that is worthy of our calling as being characterized by really five qualities. Lowliness, meekness, patience, and a mutual, these are all mutual things, a mutual forbearance and love. Now, who is this guy, Paul? What kind of audacity does he have to give us these soaring heights, these, these windows into heaven and what we have in Christ, and then to say, and be long-suffering to the person who's annoying you. Right? You see a little cognitive dissonance there? It's not. They're absolutely connected. They're absolutely connected. Let me read uh, to you what somebody wrote to a pastor in 1992. This is 1992. This is a revolutionary age. The hurricane winds of change are howling around the world. The human race seethes with unrest and rebellion. Our political institutions are polarized, divided to the left and right with little common ground. Despite the signs of current prosperity, our debt-ridden, hair-triggered economy seems destined to collapse. We have barred and deadbolted our homes, making ourselves prisoners while in our neighborhoods criminals roam free, graffiti tagging and shooting at random, filling our hearts with fear. With every day's headlines, with every new atrocity or terrorist attack, <clears throat> we see more evidence that there is a very thin line that separates civilization from anarchy. We seem to be approaching not just a political breakdown, but a cultural meltdown. What is our response? Is there anything the church can do in the face of such complex and insoluble problems? Can the church make a difference in this wobbly, dangerous world, or has the church simply become irrelevant? That's what he writes in 1992. Does it sound like society today? Yeah, that was before the internet age, etc. here, right? Well, amazingly, when Paul wrote this letter to the, to the Christians in the city of Ephesus, the Christians of that first century faced very similar problems and asked similar questions. Ephesus was a city in the Roman province of Asia, which is today Turkey. And the entire Roman Empire at that time was being shaken by some political instability. There was civil unrest, there was crime, and there was radical change. Half of the population of that empire were slaves. Really in kind of a hopeless state. Not the same as the slavery that was in the South and the United States. It was a different kind, but still. 
Most of the population eked out of poverty line living if you weren't slaves as farmers, tradespeople, and laborers. There's a small class of rich aristocrats and patricians. The city's corruption in Ephesus was legendary. The city was a center of worship for a sex goddess, Diana. If there was anything that would go on in the city that the Roman Empire didn't, didn't think should be there, the Roman legions were ready to march anywhere to suppress any kind of rebellion or civil disorder with a ruthless slaughter. The ruler was the Emperor Nero. He had a, let's be nice to say he had a checkered past. And Paul is in Rome writing this letter. He's a prisoner of the Caesar, Nero, and he's writing this letter. He's awaiting the hour when he would be summoned before Nero. Acts 28 tells us he's permitted to live in his own rented house, but he couldn't go about the city in Rome. He's subjected to the indignity of being chained to a Roman soldier day and night. That's where Paul is in Rome, writing to this city that I just shared about in a distant Ephesus. And what will he tell these Christians when he writes? Well, I shared what he wrote in chapter 1 through 3, and now he says, I am a prisoner for the Lord. Why does he say to the Ephesian church, what does he say when there's so many cries here of human need and pleas for justice and relief from oppression? He says this, believers, walk worthy, fulfill your calling, obey your orders, don't deviate from God's plan here. Follow your Lord. Don't devise your own strategy, set your own goals. Do what your God has called you to do. What is that? What is this call or, or calling that he speaks of? Well, before he tells them what that calling is, he wants them to know that Christ is behind all circumstances. He's behind circumstances. So he doesn't say, I therefore, Paul... A prisoner of Rome. A prisoner of Nero. He says, a prisoner of the Lord. What does Lord mean? The one who is in control. The one who is the master. The one who is Lord over Caesar. And what he's saying is, behind the circumstances that I am in, Behind the circumstances that you are facing in Ephesus is the ascended Lord in control building his church. And there is a dark world that you are to shine to. And so for three chapters he has explained their being. Now he was going to explain their doing. Because doing always comes out of your being, who you are. In other words... From the inside to the outside. And we're to reveal God's glory. We're to reflect His holiness and His witness to the reality of Christ by our love. And so he's going to talk and begin at the house of God. The people. The church of Jesus Christ. So what is this call, this vocation, this calling that he tells us to walk worthy of? Uh, he starts at his appeal, and then he returns to it in verse 4 with a connection with Christian hope here. He's not call, uh, talking about your calling like to be a teacher, or whether or not you run a small business, or you know, whether you're going to be a nurse, or whether you're going to be a fireman when you grow up, right? 
He's referring to the even more basic calling. Jesus said, follow me. The calling of the gospel itself. Here's what I have done. Repent and believe the gospel. Follow me. What does it look like to follow Jesus? To believe in Jesus as the risen Lord and King and give him complete and undivided allegiance for all of the rest of our lives. Well, a key part of this calling is the hope that we have in Christ, right? This King Jesus has conquered death itself, and all who give him their faithful allegiance are assured that that same victory will be theirs as well. That's the calling that he'll live up to, right? And at the same moment, in every word, in every decision, in life, in action, they're to be aware that the call to follow Jesus, the Messiah, and give him their complete loyalty takes precedence over everything else. And it starts with our attitudes and our relationships with one another. Body life here. So he says in verse 2, with all lowliness and meekness. That word meekness is not a word we use very often today, is it? But it's the idea of gentleness. Lowliness and gentleness. Now lowliness in the Greek world was something that was despised. Despised. Not till Jesus Christ came was there a true humility recognized. He humbled himself. He served others. He gave himself for others. Humility. Humility is not thinking necessarily less of yourself. Because look at chapters 1 through 3. He's talked about what God has done for us, right? But it is thinking of yourself less than thinking of God and his glory and others more. The word that Paul uses, translated lowliness here, lowliness of mind, is a recognition of the worth and value of others. The worth and value of Christ. The humble mind that was in Christ, Philippians 2, that led him to empty himself and become a servant and give his life even for others. Why would he say that? After walk, walk worthy of the vocation where you call, why would he say do this with what? Humility, lowliness, and meekness. Why would he say that? Because it is essential for the witness of the gospel. How many people have come to Christ through proud Christians? Through disunified churches, right? Oh, it could happen, right? Because God uses his word no matter what. But I'll tell you what, the fragrance and the power is there when there is a humility and gentleness. Pride lurks behind all discord, right? <laughs> a secret of concordness, being of one accord, is humility. That's not very difficult to prove. Um, who are the people you instinctively like and are drawn to? Find easy to get, get along with. The people that, in our hearts and flesh, we think give us the respect that we deserve, right? The people we uh, immediately uh, dislike in our flesh are people who tend to not give us that kind of respect, right? In other words, in our relationships, without the Spirit, guess what rules our relationships? Our own vanity rules our relationships. It's a key factor. And so we maneuver to find that respect that we think we deserve, right? 
in the gospel of Christ, we're accepted in Christ, now we maneuver by recognizing everybody's worth. And by recognizing that God has put us as an instrument, a vessel, that he wants to use. The other word there, in humility, besides lowliness, is meekness. Meekness. It's a word used for domestic animals. Why is an animal a domestic animal and not a wild animal? I read, I saw a headline yesterday of a man who all his life had raised white tigers was killed by one of his white tigers he had raised for his cub. Um, that wasn't a domestic animal, because it kills you. It turns on you, right? Meekness is not a synonym necessarily for weakness. It is, a, is a, it is a gentleness of the strong, a strength under control. It's the quality of, uh, of someone who might even be a strong personality who is self-controlled and is a servant of others. It's the absence of a, of a leaning, a disposition to assert my personal rights to others. Gentleness. And here he says, walk worthy of your vocation, worthy of your call, with all humility and meekness, all lowliness and meekness or gentleness. You know that great passage where the Lord Jesus says, Come to me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And he says something after that we tend to pass over, for I am meek and lowly. If there's something that describes the King of Kings and the Savior came to earth, it's that couplet there. Meek and lowly. Humble and gentle. Humble and gentle. There's a power that comes from a humble and gentle life, isn't there? I've been impacted by humble and gentle men and women in my life. You have too, I'm sure. But he doesn't stay there. Because not everybody is going to be lowly and meek, right? By the way, that's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to be humble and meek. But he says, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Long-suffering, bearing, being patience with one another in love. It's a long-suffering towards aggravating people. Aggravating people. There are people who aggravate you that might not aggravate me, and there are people who aggravate me that might not aggravate you. Right? How aggravating were we toward the wrath of God, Ephesians 2 said, in our sin. Right? Forbearing one another is the kind of love in God that Christ has shown toward us. Someone said this, to become long-suffering, one has to be long-bothered. <laughs> True, isn't it? Long-suffering doesn't come by everybody being sweet to you and living in a Pollyanna world. It comes because there's sin in the world, and that exists in the church as well. That there is a way to, to maneuver through that. Because he says, forbearing one another in love. And in our society, that word love is just such a general, we say, I love Mountain Dew. The same way we say, I love you, honey, on our route. Right? 
Love is a covenant commitment for the good of others. It's a setting of myself aside for the service of others. That's, that's what love is. Because you see the high value that God puts. It's seeking the welfare of others. And so, to, 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 to be long-suffering means that in spite of me being long-bothered and aggravated, I'm showing the compassion and kindness and grace and tenderheartedness later on 432, right? That God has shown me, even as God in Christ, He's forgiven me. He's a forgiving spirit. Um, there's a picture of this in a in a uh, uh, in our in our marriages. In our marriages, right? If you can't be long suffering, how long is your marriage going to last? How long is your spouse going to put up with you? Put the other way, right? Um, there's highs and lows in marriage. Now, someone's, someone picture it like this. Picture your marriage as a grassy field. And on your wedding day, it's a beautiful meadow, a grassy field, right? And you enter it at the beginning full of hope and joy. And you look out in the future, and you can see in that meadow beautiful trees and flowers and rolling hills. And the beauty is what you see in each other. <clears throat> And your relationship is that field with the flowers and the rolling hills. Before long, there's a herd of cows there and you're stepping in cow pies. Right? In some seasons in your marriage, cow pies seem to be everywhere. Right? You're tiptoeing around. Maybe late at night, they're especially prevalent. They're the, they're the sins, they're the flaws, they're the idiosyncrasies and, and weaknesses and annoying habits that are in you that are bothering your spouse. Or the other way around, right? And you try to forgive them and endure them with grace. But those things kind of have a way, right? Like getting a, a rock in your shoe. That, that dominate, right? That little bit. You know that there's a rock in your shoe. And some of these things might not even be true. They might be our perceptions, right? But sometimes it feels that's all there is. There's cow pies, right? What do you do with those cow pies? Here's what you do. You make a compost pile. <laughs> Alright? Love and forgiveness and grace shovel those shovels those cow pies into the compost pile. What can you do with a cow pie to that meadow? <laughs> right? So you gotta look at each other. If this is true in marriage, this is true in our relationship as a body. And admit there's a lot of cow pies. But you know what you said in your marriage is what you need to say to your fellow church members as well. You know what? There's a lot more to this relationship than cow pies. Look at this metal. Right? And we keep losing, we lose sight of that because we're focusing on the cow pie. So what we need to do with those cow pies is throw them in the compost pile there. And when we have to, uh, when, when we do that, what we're, what we're doing is exercising a forgiving and gracious spirit as Christ has done to us. And you're going to be able to walk away from those piles and set your eyes on the rest of the field and show your favorite paths and your hills that you know are, are scattered with cow pies. You're going to be thankful for that part of the field. There. Sweet. Your hands might be dirty. Your back might be sore from a lot of shoveling of cow pies, right? But you're not going to pitch your tent by the compost pile. You go to the compost pile when you got to take the cow pies. And I know the illustration breaks down in a lot of ways here. But that's what Paul is saying with forbearing one another. Forbearing one another. In love. What does he mean in love? 
Um, can I give you an assignment for your devotions this week, your study? I know many of you have your own plans, etc. here. Um, but maybe would you take this with your family devotions and look at 1 John 4, 7 through 12. 1 John 4, 7 through 12. You know why? 1 John 4 says, God dwells in us when we, sh- when we have love. It's a powerful thing. The way we know God abides in us and dwells in us is directly connected to the love that we show in relation to each other. So let me just give you that, because I don't have time to get into that here this morning. But John 4, 7, 12, to extend this here. And so he says, uh, endeavoring, uh, with all the employees to meekness, with long-suffering, bearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Verse 3. The word endeavor means making every effort. I want you to notice something here. The command is not to create unity. Why can we not create unity? There's two reasons. Number one, we can't force that upon someone else. But number two is the Spirit has already created that unity. Remember chapter two? The Spirit's done that over and over. He says that in chapter two there. We keep we guard what the Spirit has already done to us. This is something that the Lord Jesus prayed for that has a, a, a witnessing aspect here. We will not be a good witness if we are not a unified church. John 17, 20-23, Jesus said to the disciples, Neither pray to the Lord, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, and that, that they may be perfect or complete in one, and that the world may know. So there's the missional aspect of it, that our unity uh, uh, has, a, has, a, has a witnessing aspect to it. The world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. How will the world know that God has sent his son and he loves his church, his believers, as he has loved the son? The answer is that they may be complete in one. There's an effort there. That word bond there is a word that they would use of, of, of animal sinews that they would use to bind things together, tie things together, lash together. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You want to know what the bond of peace is? Read chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. But you can think of it like this. Something that is kind of a part of our everyday life, whether we realize it or not. It's in computers, electronics, etc., CD players, etc. In 1957, there was a graduate student at Columbia University named Gordon Gould. He had been working with pumping atoms to higher energy states so they could emit light. And he elaborated his ideas and he speculated about all the things that could be done with a concentrated beam of light. And he realized he was onto something. <coughs> he, he named his yet-to-be-invented device a what? A laser. Right? Any electronic people know that means... I've forgotten it from high school. Light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. Sixty years later, okay, that was 1957. 
we're still seeing the impact of the laser. Lockheed Martin, the uh, aircraft, uh, military aircraft company, boasted about a new laser as a ground-based prototype system that could burn through an entire car engine in seconds from a mile away. The company called the system the most efficient and lethal version on the planet. But a laser is a really good illustration here of what we're talking about. Because here's how it works. It takes a bunch of atoms and it binds them together in a powerful focus. And it does something. <laughs> it does something. It, 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 it takes a unity of light and it translates into something that causes something to happen. And if we understood the power of unity that comes through humility, a meekness, a gentleness, that's more like snakes when we get stuck on, right? Less like worms, more like snakes. And we understand the work that it's got to take to forbear one another in love. When that gets translated into our lives, we realize who we are in Christ and walk that out. We have a greater impact on those around us than ever before. But I want you to notice one more thing in these verses. All right? There's a setting that's assumed. There is a setting that's assumed. What is the setting? Everybody comes here Sunday morning from, ten, from 9 to 10.30 and goes back home? What is the setting that's assumed? A body that has a life together, right? A body that has a life together. Um, there's about 101 another's in the New Testament. It's a great study in your concordance. There is a... Uh, there's an Egyptian soldier who was one to Christ by the name of Pachamias. He's won to Christ by the kindness of Christians in Thebes, Egypt. He was released from the military around AD 315. He was baptized. He was serious about his new faith and determined to grow. And so he came, he went under the discipleship of a man named Palamon. And Palamon was um, what they called an ascetic. He was kind of a hermit. But he taught him the life of self-denial and how to live solitary. Religious hermit. Right? And there was a movement in those days that was out of balance. That the model of devotion was private, individualized lives, recluse, dedicated to resisting the corruption of society. That's how they justified. And these hermits lived in the desert. They wandered the desert alone, living simply, fasting, praying, even. And that was their definition and image of holiness. Solitude, silence, and severity. Life being really hard. And that was his early spiritual training. But as he read the New Testament, he began to question a lot of that. How can you learn to love, which is a Pretty high thing, right? That's in the New Testament. Pursue love alone. How can you learn to love if no one else is around? How can you learn humility living alone? How can you set yourself aside for the sake of others, right? How can you learn kindness or gentleness or goodness in isolation? I know it sounds good. That's why we live in Maine, right? But how can you learn 
patience toward other people unless someone puts you, your patience to the test. Okay? And so, in short, he realized that developing spiritual maturity, a key component is this, being around ordinary, ordinary people. He said this, to save souls, he said, you must bring them together. God doesn't work through that. And here's, here's the principle, here's the point here. Is that these spiritual muscles that we're going to now walk out and exercise in chapter 4, verse 1. They may not even be learned among the friends that you have chosen. Right? God's kind of love is best learned when we can't be that selective about who we associate. Perhaps that's why a couple of the things that God has instituted for you, your family, your church, your neighbors here, are not necessarily, people are necessarily chosen for you, right? You got the kids you got. They got the dad or mom they got, right? You got the siblings you got when you're in that family. You got the church you got when you became a part of our church, right? And it's not that we have a choice here about, well, okay, my parents or my brothers and sisters are, I don't want them to be my parents or brothers or sisters anymore, right? What do we call, what is the, what is the Bible still calling you to do? Still love them, right? Uh, in the family of God, anyone who confesses Jesus Christ here as their Lord and Savior must be accepted as you have accepted, as God has accepted you. And so the way that we learn this agape love and verse 2 is learned most effectively in the associations you wouldn't necessarily volunteer for. Because you and I like to just choose what's attractive. And so holiness develops here, here among the body. Listen, have your private spiritual life. You need that. But that is, that is a component. That is not the only component. That is a component of spiritual development. God's body life isn't limited to a preaching service. Right now, there's one person exercising the gift. There is a host of gifts in here. 1 Corinthians 12 says. And in fact, even when you read the gatherings that Paul says should be going on in the city of Corinth, that was a mess. They were using the gifts for their own benefit. And First Corinthians 14, their mutual participation. It's kind of like this. I coached basketball for about 10 years. <clears throat> I'm not going to say I was a good coach. We had a lot of success. But I had a good time. Uh, coached basketball, and, and before the game, you had, pra- had your practices, right? And then you, before your game, you're gathering your, your guys together. And uh, you're saying, all right, this is our game plan. This is their weaknesses. These are our strengths. Um, these are uh, these are the things we're going to do. Uh, you, you, you use a little sports psychology on them. Try to get them motivated, right, to play the game. Uh, to not uh, um, uh, just think of themselves and be the ball hogs and be a team, right? And then you have the game and you play it. And sometimes I wonder if the church and our assembly gatherings here, as important as they are, like the pregame, and we think that's the game. That's the game. And we're like, okay, that's it, I'm good. 
But the Bible here is calling us to something that relates to you with people on the other sides of the auditorium and all around you. We can't ask an auditorium necessarily to do what tables and living rooms and serving projects can do. Our, the one another's in the scripture are assuming togetherness and sharing time together. And so this has been a challenge to me. I'm speaking to myself here because I'm a very private individual by nature. I would be happy living up in northern Maine in a cabin with just, a, just my family and maybe a snowmobile. That'd be fun. That'd be fun. That's not what God has asked me to do to grow spiritual maturity, though. By the way, there are times where you do need to get away and get solitude and silence. Our society has missed that as well. But I wonder, do you know each other's story? How they came to the Lord? What, they, what the Lord's been up to in their lives? How they met and got married? Or how did The things they like to do. The gifts God's given them to serve. The people, perhaps, they're praying for and burdened about to know Christ, the passions of their heart. They're, 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 uh, uh, what contributions have you made to welcoming them as they've been welcomed in Christ as he's welcomed you? These verses here, walking together, worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called, tell us, when he starts telling us what that looks like, tell us already, especially with a forbearing heart, that we don't have it all together. But, when you look at the rest, it tells us that together we have it all in Christ. It's together that we do ministry. So let me just read you some, um, some one another's scripture. Don't judge one another or put a stumbling block in a brother's way. Bear, carry on your shoulders one another's burdens. Speak truth to one another. Don't lie to one another. Comfort one another concerning the resurrection. Encourage and build up one another. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Pray for one another. Be hospitable to one another. One third of the one, one another commands deal with the unity of the church. Be at peace with one another. Don't grumble among one another. Be of the same mind, the mind of Christ with one another. Accept one another. Don't bite, devour, consume one another. Seriously, don't eat each other. Here's what he's saying. Don't boastfully challenge or envy one another. Gently, patiently tolerate one another. I give you references for all these. Be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving to one another. Bear with and forgive one another. Seek good for one another. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't complain against one another. Confess sins to one another. Love one another. Through love, serve one another. Tolerate one another in love. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Greeting, accept. Be devoted to one another in love. Give preference to one another in honor. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Serve one another. Wash one another's feet. Don't be haughty. Be of the same mind. Be subject to one another. Call yourselves in humility toward one another. So, I guess here's what I'm saying. I'm going to wrap it up here. In order to make fully formed, mature disciples of Jesus Christ, there are certain things that you and I have to experience with one another on a regular basis. 
there are certain essential practices here of walking worthy. Jesus prioritizes these things. We know that it's biblical truth, right? Not just being doers of the word, but hearers. It's also modeling. If all I see or you see of me is on Sunday for an hour sitting, it's a little bit of modeling of the Christian life, but there's a lot more, right? There's more to build on here. There is there there are there are things that people haven't seen lived out or expressed. You we all have different families we grew up in. And there's a lot of us who I grew up in a Christian family, my dad was a pastor, and so there's things that I saw modeled, but not everybody here in this room has. Things relating to marriage, to parenting, to finances, to sexual purity, to communication, to hospitality, to generosity. A lot of things we carry into our Christian lives from our families, whether we like it or not. Much of what the disciples learned from Jesus came from sharing his life together, experiencing things. Prayer, right? Prayer together. I've been trying to push... Okay, if you can't make Wednesday night prayer meeting, when are you getting together with other believers to pray together? The problem is, we all hear that and we feel guilty when we hear that, you know, and we don't. But we got to take the next action step to make that happen, right? So here's what I what I would suggest. I think I think in our culture, society, I think there are, there are probably. Uh, Three structures that really help us to gather with this. I think our Sunday gathering is important. I don't think it's the end all, but I think it's very important. But I also think small groups are very important to see these things fleshed out. Each of you has strengths and accomplished things that others can't and vice versa. So here's what I would just challenge you to think about here. I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of pushing this boat towards you here and I'm going to try to follow the line here. Imagine this with your hearts and minds, okay? A group of a few families together that are, live generally in the same area here. Let's just say for me, it's North Union, okay? And so there's a few of you families that live around North Union. Not just my favorite peeps or my family members here. Remember, you don't get to choose your neighbors, do you? necessarily. But a group of people that feel calling to each other and a calling in our community, in our area here, uh, to be people who flesh this out, body life. Do we begin to become more aware of our spiritual gifts and personalities and strengths and weaknesses here? And we begin to uh, uh, ask ourselves, what are the needs that you're aware of in your community, in our area of North Union or whatever, the town of Union? And we prayerfully discern who are the 10 or 15 lost neighbors or co-workers or friends that we're going to commit to loving and pursuing on a regular basis. And we're going to pray. And we're going to pray. And we're going to pray. And we're going to share the Word of God together. But we're not just going to be stagnant like the Dead Sea. We're going to look for opportunities to serve. And as those opportunities to serve happen, we're going to be able to speak gospel truths in the lives of those people that God has put in our hearts. Do you imagine a church with clusters of this all over? How powerful that would be? It would start to speak to what God wants to see in our community done. Wow! Those people really love each other. 
but yet they're not just a holy huddle. They also care about others. Who set up the Christmas trees and the lights in Union Common? Oh, that was the weird group that gets together in North Union or whatever. Right? Or who cleaned up this? Or who's serving to help that widow? No one else in the community is. Oh, they are. And, and, and discerning what God wants to do with Jesus at the center and the Holy Spirit as our helper. It's a, it's a huge, it's a, it's, a, it's a powerful thing. And God can really do something with that. And that's how this walking worthy, this body life together happens. Maybe it would be something like this. There's Sunday gathering, and then every other week, you're getting together, you have a meal together as a, as a, as a, as a group. Uh, maybe it's the first and third Sundays you get together in the evening. Maybe one one of these get-togethers is some get-together time, some recreation time. Maybe another night is uh, another time is okay. We're going to spend our time here serving in this ministry or serving this particular person or helping this particular poor. Person or widow. Maybe it's dropping off meals for families that are single or, or families or singles that are tired or stressing or experiencing transitions or loss, whether an addition of a new family member or a loss of them. Maybe there's some people with some house project skills and you get together the people in your group that can do that, um, that help those who don't have the finances or skills to get things done. Leaky gutters, riding boards on the deck. Maybe it's running errands for families or singles that are sick or injured or having a new baby, etc. Or maybe there's a family that they are they lost a vehicle and manpower. They're, 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 they need some they need some help coming alongside or babysitting for families that need a break or a date night or just to bless them or or organizing some get-togethers in your community here, uh, a barbecue, etc. Uh, around certain times of the year or seasons or holidays that. For people that don't have very many healthy friends or family around. Something like the community group that uh, Paul and, and, and Charlie were doing. I don't have it all together. And I don't have all the specifics of what that would look like. But you, can you begin to dream with me? And see what God would do with that? Like, do we... Can we relate to each other on such a way that we begin to get aggravated with each other a little bit? And have to practice forbearance? Can we build on what God's already done in the past and push ahead as a church and see what God will do for us? Walk worthy. Vocational worthy to call. Loneliness and meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another love. You see, after this morning, I, after the love o'clock service, I go home. And if someone aggravated me, it's all right. I go home. I can be aggravated by my kids now. When I'm sharing life with people, I can't just say, all right, see you later, right? Jesus wants to see fully formed disciples of Jesus Christ. So all I'm saying to you this morning is this. Let's rejoice in what God has done and what He's building and let's continue to build on that to see us 
to see us uh, more fully formed and create structures even. Can you dream with me the back of them? Can we can we start to put that together here? Or what would be to follow Christ together? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have given us so much. And so many times, like Charlie prayed this morning, priorities are so different. Lord, we don't look at your church and its mission here as something that's to be at the hub. Rather, we look at it as something on the outskirts, on the spokes, as another thing. Like other things, when things get busy or whatever, that's the one we'll drop. Or, Lord, you called this great calling that you formed us into in Ephesians 1 through 3. You put this at the center. You call it your eternal purpose. And how dare we move to the move what you put at the eternal here to the periphery in the outskirts. Lord, we need wisdom in our generation, in our day and age, and how to engage with each other, and how to engage with the lost. More than that, Lord, we need motivation. We know that motivation, you promise, will come through what you preceded this passage with, this prayer that is to begin to take territory for the Lordship of Christ in our hearts. And may you do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, if that's something that struck a chord with you and you're interested in talking about more, text me, email me, call me, let me know. I'd love to help in a in my fallen, broken way but trusting in the Lord's fullness and completeness. Start to shepherd you and shepherd us into um, uh, this this calling of what it means to have body life together and serve the world. Here's this. <laughs>